Welcome to Man Up, a podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Are you ready? Man Up. Yes, sir! Welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. You know, this program is really about those things, and I want you to listen to the next words that I say very carefully. I say them every week, but I want you to listen to them as if they are the first time that you've heard them, and think about what they mean. We are a band of brothers. We're soldiers. We're comrades in arms. We fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile, until each of us has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. For a long time, that's been kind of a creed for me. That's what I've tried to make my life about, more or less. It's filtered through, biblically speaking, it's filtered through this program, the Real Dad channel, all the things that I'm trying to do on YouTube and and in the podcast airwaves to try to give men some kind of beacon. And I never did this, I never set out to be a thought leader, and I'm not saying that I am. And I never set out to be an influencer, but one of the things that I've noticed recently, and this is something I've really been praying about, is that the messages that my audience responds to, both here and in biblically speaking, are when I reach out and I talk to men like men and try to help them be better men. And that surprised me. That was really not the audience for Biblically Speaking at all when I started out. And and it's not going to be my exclusive message there, but I certainly am going to do a lot more of that kind of content because I can see by the numbers that that's what people are craving. That's what people, that's what men need. And this is something I've been praying about. I've been asking God to give me some guidance in those areas of my life because I want them to be good. I want this to be a program that men turn to and say, hey, I need my weekly dose of man up. I need that kind of encouragement. I want to share that with others and I need to be there. And I've been asking God to help this be good for you. I've been asking him and I make no, this has never been a secret. I've told you guys this several times, but I ask him to help this be good for my family so that if the coming days are bad, that maybe this can be a source of income for us as well. If things get difficult as they may very well likely do. But all of that aside, I'm realizing something, that men are looking for a voice. And too often we're finding our voices in the wrong place. We're finding our voices in places like Andrew Tate, who's, and I I don't mean to pick on him all the time, but it's kind of an easy target. It's such a a self-promotional way of thinking that top G school or whatever it is that he does about being the, the manliest man in the room kind of thing and treat women like trash until they do what you want them to. That's not what being a man is about, but there is an element of manhood that is under attack. And if you've ever felt like you are under attack, like you, like someone is trying to make it impossible to be the person that God has called you to be, you are not wrong. The devil is attacking manhood right now. He's attacking biblical masculinity on every front from making it the mockery of culture to to pornography, to immersing our children in a culture of transgenderism and and gender confusion, to public shaming and humiliation of men who are just trying to be men. All over 
the sphere of our culture, what we see is that the devil is attacking men. And you know why that is. You know why that is, because we have been called to be the leaders. We have been called to be those who stand in the gap. We have been called to be the kind of priest for our household that sets the spiritual tone. And the devil knows that if he can destroy what it means to be a man, he can destroy and he can destroy what it means to be a husband and particularly destroy what it means to be a father. Then he can take an entire generation of, of, of kids. And it's just checkmate before they ever put on the armor of God. And he's doing this by feeding us the wrong ideas about being men. And when we stand up against them, when we say, no, that's not what a man is, then we are mocked, we are laughed at, we are scorned for that. But I'm going to tell you something. You are those things, whether you know it or not, that God has called you to be. You are the leader of your family. And if you don't lead, there is no substitute for that. You, if you are not leading and your wife takes over the leadership of your family, it is not going to be led in the way God wants it to, to because there's a key component of what he designed that's being left out. And I'm not demeaning the way that a woman leads, but there is a, there is a, a reality there. And if you are not stepping up, if you want your family to be a family that prays together, then you better be a man of prayer. If you want to be a a family that turns to God for answers, then you better be a man that turns to God for answers. If you want children that are strong and courageous, if you want sons that have the courage in the next generation when it's even harder, if he keeps up at this, when it's even harder to be a man who have the courage to be a man of God, then you better be a man of God. And if you want daughters that aren't willing to give in to the temptation that men try to throw at them, with the weak, fake promises of love to give themselves to him, but have a strong core base of faith, knowing that they will find a man who is godly and that that is worth waiting for, then you better be the example of that. Because I am going to tell you something. If you are going to fight a lion, you had better be a lion, or you at least better be a mighty man of God. First Peter chapter five says our enemy, the devil, is a roaring lion, and he's seeking to be seeking the one whom he may devour. But in that same chapter, that same verse, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant. Some of your translations will say, be on the alert. And it says, Resist him, and he will flee from you. Because he may be a lion, but he's not as big as the lion of Judah. The lion Jesus that stands with us. And if you're sitting there and complaining in this season of life saying, I keep losing these spiritual battles, when is the devil going to give up and move on to someone else? The answer is never. As long as you keep losing and aren't turning to God, he's going to keep you in that boil. It's never going to get any better. The devil did not come to Jesus in the middle of temptation. And and if you're coming from a secular perspective and hearing this program, this program is going to be very scripture heavy today. And I make no apologies for that because because the definition of what you see as a man out there is corrupted. If you want to see how to deal with Satan in the middle of all of this, you need to look at Jesus. Satan did not tell Jesus, I'm going to go easy on you because you hadn't had anything to eat for 30 days. He went right for that jugular. And it wasn't until Jesus resisted him three times with it is written that he gave up and left him alone for a season. The devil is not going to give up on persecuting you. The devil is not going to give up on on the spiritual warfare that you're engaged in as long as you keep losing the battles. And that's a reality. 
And we need to understand that he is active and that we cannot be peacemakers with culture. I know we're called to be peacemakers, but that's talking about an individual level. We are never in Scripture. Never are we called to be peacemakers with culture. We are told when it comes to the heavenly places and the spiritual forces of wickedness, which are the forces that are at work in our culture, we're told to put on the armor of God and stand up. And we need to understand that. We need to get serious about this. And we need to we need to start being the hero that we're looking for. And we've got to realize that we're going to have to draw some lines when it comes to our culture. We're going to have to stand up. We're going to have to say the unpopular thing, the thing that gets us labeled misogynistic or transphobic. We're going to have to say those things when it comes to defending our kids. Now, I don't have to go out there and involve myself in the political battles, but I need to get involved in the personal struggles of my my children and say the thing that I'm not allowed to say and do it with the confidence that when I do it, God is on my side. And we have got to realize that the undermining of men is not new. The devil has been doing this, and he's been doing this at a rapid pace almost since the invent of television. For every Marshall Dillon character that you have out there, you've had at least two Homer Simpsons. This uh, this feckless, effete man who is no more than a child, who can't ever do anything from a spirit of nobility. That is how men are painted in our culture. So that culture will laugh at us and mock us. It believes that we are stupid. It believes that we are men, man, children. And it believes that because it wants to believe that. And when that's not enough, he tries to enslave us to pornography. And when that's not enough, he tries to get us to cower in fear. And when that's not enough, he tries to enslave us to envy. And on and on and on it goes. He shames us into silence because somebody may say a hurtful thing about us. He shames us into not speaking out about culture to our families because somebody may disagree with us. He shames us in all of these things in, into, into accepting the, the role that God said we shouldn't be accepting of because it is convenient. And finally, finally, men of our culture are at last starting to wake up, but the voices they're waking up to are not portraying the godly version of what it means to be a man. And we need to understand that if we're going to be men, it starts with courage. You know, you talk about a man of courage. There's a man in the Bible. His name is Benaiah. He's one of David's mighty men. He was over David's mercenary group, the band that went with David, that he was he was the leader of that group. His, his I mean, this guy was a bad dude. He was a godly dude, but he's a bad dude. I mean, not bad like evil, but just you would not want to get on his bad side. That, it, I mean, it, some of the stories that are told about us, number one, he comes from a line of of really mighty men. But, I mean, we have, there's like six verses about him, but they're some of the most epic verses in, in the Old Testament that, could be, that are ever spoken about a single man. But, I mean, he does some amazing things. He goes and slays two Midianites that were called lions. He actually goes into a pit with a physical lion, but he goes down into, into a pit on a snowy day. Somebody had dug a pit, I guess, to capture a lion that had been terrorizing maybe a flock or maybe a village. Well, the lion ends up in a pit, and Benaiah says, I'll go take care of it. He goes down into a pit on a snowy day and kills a lion. An Egyptian giant, seven feet tall, not quite Goliath territory, but not a small thing, comes at him with a spear like a weaver's beam. But benaiah has got a club. He takes the club and eventually beats the Egyptian by beating him with the club and then taking the spear out of his hand and killing him with his own spear. is a normal-sized guy. The Egyptian is a giant. Kills him with his own spear. When Adonijah, when Adonijah, the son of David, tries to usurp the throne of Solomon before David is even dead and buried... 
Adonijah gets Solomon and says, come on. And he surrounds him with some mighty men and says, parades him through the streets of Jerusalem, takes him to David and has him coronated with an I dare you to do something while I'm standing up for this boy kind of attitude. And I'm going to tell you something. We need some Benaiahs in our lives. If we're trying to be David, men after God's own heart, we need some Benaiahs, some men that are loyal to that vision of what we're trying to be, of what God wants us to be. And we need to be Benaiah to somebody else's David too. We need to have that kind of loyalty for each other, not loyalty that comes from a misplaced place of, of I'm your ride or die, but comes from a real sense of godly courage. When Joshua went into the land of Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, God said, didn't I command you to be strong and courageous and not to be fearful because I'm going to go with you everywhere you go. The same God that said that to, Eli- to Joshua says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If fear is what is causing us to stop being men of God, then we have got to realize that our courage does not come from in here. Our courage comes from the promise of God that he does not abandon his people. Jesus does not abandon his people. Paul tells Timothy, look, you can be strong and of good courage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, and not be afraid or ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And he goes on to say, be like me, Timothy, because I know whom I, I believe in, and I am persuaded he can keep all the things that I commit to him until the day of judgment. That's what we're looking toward. My courage does not come from Jared Bowman is a man's man. It comes from knowing that my God and my Savior stand with me. A natural part of being a man is having fear, but courage is not a lack of fear. It's moving forward in spite of fear. And when God has promised to be with us, what right do we have to be afraid? But not only does it take courage, it takes humility. That, that's I think that's the, kind of the unspoken quality of Benaiah is that loyalty to David doesn't just come from, hey, David's a mighty man and I'm a mighty man too and we're going to hang out together. It is humility. He sees David as his king. Do we see Jesus in the right place? Do we have the humility that Moses had? He was called the meekest man that ever lived. Do we have the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2 who has makes that journey? It says he was God and it was not robbery. He was not, taking, he was not taking anything away from God to be equal with him, but he set that aside and he came in the form of man and was obedient as a man to the point of death, even death on the cross. But humility is not just, not just setting aside me for a little while. Humility is something that I live in. Just like courage is not a one-time decision. It's It's something that I live in. It's who I am. It's at my core. Humility has to be there because out of humility, what men are called to be according to the Bible, and we're answering this question of what is a man, men are called to engage in sacrificial love. Jesus said in John 15, no greater love hath any man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And then he says something really shocking. He says, I want you to go and love one another just like I've loved you sacrificial love. That means that when the hard thing needs to be done, those that love the way that God said they should love, those who love like Jesus loved them, that they stand up and do the hard thing. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul tells husbands to love their wives. Now, wives are to be in subjection to the husband, that that scripture gets so twisted. It's as if Paul is saying, look, the man is the king. He's the head of the household. He gets it his way. That is not the picture that is painted. Men are told to love their households, love their wives, and in the next chapter, they are to bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They are to love their families like Jesus loved the church. And you know what that love looks like? That love 
in order to sanctify her and cleanse her from every spot and to present her to himself as blameless, to lift her up and edify her out of the things that she was tangled in. He put himself on a cross. Guys, that means we need to go to the cross for our people. And that shouldn't surprise us because we're supposed to be daily cross bearers for Jesus. We need to go to the cross. We give a, it's being a man and being the head of your house does not mean getting it your way. It means giving up your way to lead them in love the way that Jesus leads us in love. And that needs a big hallelujah, amen at the end of it. Because sacrificial love is not just a feeling. It is the willingness to reach down inside ourselves and give up everything for the good of those, for those of whom we are sacrificing, for whom we are sacrificing. And that means that we are acting out of a sense of responsibility. You know, the first thing that God did for man when he created him is he gave him a job. Absolutely. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is told to tend the garden. Think about this. It's the most idyllic place God ever created. God says, Adam, here's your job. I want you to tend the garden. In Isaiah chapter 6, after Isaiah has this great vision of the Lord's robe filling the temple and him and the Lord on his throne, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. And and yeah, basically, basically, Isaiah is convinced he's going to die because he's accidentally seen something he's not supposed to see. And then Isaiah is cleansed, and this question gets asked, who's going to go for us? Who's going to tell this people this message that they're not going to want to hear? And Isaiah says... Here I am, send me. He says, great, Isaiah, it's the worst job interview ever. I mean, think about this. He tells Isaiah, great, I'm going to send you to people. They're not going to listen to you. You're going to talk to the people. They're not going They're not going to hear you. I'm going to give you words, and it's going to be like they're sealed up because that's how far the people's heart is from me. You know, I made a big journey a couple of years ago. I moved from the great state, some would even say the nation of Texas, and I moved to Portland, Oregon. People thought I was crazy when I did. But I moved here for one very specific reason. Because I had a group of people up here who really, really, really wanted someone to come teach them the gospel. Who really, really wanted to hear the message. But I got to tell you, if I'd come up here in the summer of 2021, and or summer of 2020, and and the people that I met were like, uh, said things like, ah, we're not going to listen to you when you come. We're not really going to pay attention to you, but we just want somebody to fill the pulpit. I got to tell you, I, I would still be in Texas. I would absolutely still be in Texas right now. I came up here because the I love these people with all my heart. That's the whole reason why I moved up to this place. But Isaiah fulfills the calling, that responsibility, and he's told, look, they're never going to listen to you. But you go and you do it anyway because responsibility includes being faithful regardless of whether or not others are. Responsibility is stewardship over the things that God has given us, including our family, especially our children. Responsibility means that we take the difficult choices of sacrificing today for the spiritual well-being of tomorrow, and we need to learn those things. Because not only does he call men to be responsible, he calls for us to live in compassion. And you know what? That's what he shows to us. In the 145th Psalm, David writes in verse 9, The Lord is good to all and has mercy over all that he has made. In Psalm 18, verse 25, and quickly, the Psalm 18 and Psalm 80 and 82 are becoming two of my favorite psalms. But Psalm 18, verse 25, and some of your translations will use a different word here. We use the word mercy. With the merciful, God shows himself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. And with the pure, you show yourself pure. That that's what we're called upon to do. That 
we're called to have that kind of compassion. If I've got somebody that's struggling, I need to be like God. I need, I need to be for them what God would be for me. And that's borne out by what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 about helping our brethren with their struggles. And we do that because that fulfills that law of sacrificial love. The sacrificial love makes compassion a responsibility. You want to talk about what a man is? You want to talk about what God says a man should be? Compassionate and sacrificial love from a sense of responsibility and duty and obligation are absolutely at the core of those things. And that's what and that should drive us to have the kind of courage that we need to have. But men are called upon to be protectors. In Psalm 46, David calls God his strength and his refuge, a present help in a time of trouble. In Psalm 18, he talks about all the help that he gets from God and how God is his deliverer and and the the imagery there of God uh, almost turning a storm against his enemies, like God is moving through the air and he's become this storm surrounding him. And it's like a raging uh, hurricane bearing down on the enemies of David. It's a really cool scene. Imagine fire in the middle of a hurricane. You kind of got the example. But then David's, David says something very special or very interesting. He says, you know what? That same God who protects me and defends me, he trained me for battle. He trained me to fight warfare. He trained me to bend a a bow of bronze. And we need to realize that we need to be protectors because that's what God has called us to be. You know, yes, we're supposed to be peacemakers, and we'll get into that later, but we need to be protectors. And protecting means standing up and defending those who cannot defend themselves. And that goes along with Psalm 82. I mentioned that as being one of my favorites a minute ago. And the reason why is as God is condemning this unjust, this injustice that he's seeing through the prophet Asaph, or through the man Asaph, rather, that he says something, he talks about what the ideal man should have been. It says in verse 1 of 82, Psalm, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weakness. Here's what God wanted from them. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. I got to tell you, if you don't think God wants you to stand up for righteousness and goodness, he doesn't want you to be a force for goodness in a culture of wickedness. If you think being a peacemaker means going along with whatever our culture is doing because I don't want to be at war, you are missing the point. That is not a man. Men are called to be protectors and defenders. Men are called to stand in the gap. Men are called to be the watchmen. Men are called to sound the alarm, to be the protectors, to be the ones that fight the lions. That men are called to be providers. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells Timothy that the man that does not provide for his own, even his own family, is worse than an unbeliever, and he has denied the truth. Uh, that's one of the things that our culture has turned on its head. They said, you know, it's okay for a man not to be a provider, and that that works for our family. We need to be very careful with accepting that. It may work for your family, but you need to stop and ask yourself, why does the Bible say a man that does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith? Why does it say that? Just because it can be done another way doesn't mean it is just as good or as godly because something happens to men when they are not providing for their own, when they are not caring for their own. And whatever form that care or that provision takes, you need to be able to define it because the last thing that we are supposed to do is be these feet feckless men children that we see in, in the stereotype all the time who are just going out and serving themselves, living for the boys weekends and that, that kind of garbage because we have, we have professional wives who out earn us anyway, so I really don't need to do anything. That is not okay. 
That is not acceptable. That is called worse than unbelief. And we need to understand that the devil is trying to hook us into this belief that I don't have to do what God said because it's more palatable than what he actually said to do. We need to be those who provide, who make provision for our family. This involves being generous, giving to those who have need. Being a source of strength for others can be provision because provision comes from strength. And that's one of the things that we need to realize is that when I say I'm strong, that strength is not me coming from a well of strength within me. That strength is coming from God. In Isaiah 40 and 29, we're told that he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. In Psalm 27 and 1, David wrote, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Proverbs 24 and 10, Solomon tells men that they need to be careful about relaxing when it's time for work because strength will be missing when it's needed. Strength comes from God, but it involves being resilient in the face of difficulty. It revolves trusting that God will sustain us, and strength will not be there if we are not those who are out there working and laboring and growing as men of God, because self-control is the core of strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul recognizes the importance of self-control in his running the race of godliness. He tells them that they need to discipline themselves like an athlete that they need discipline. In Titus 2, he calls for older men in verse 2 to be self-controlled and show themselves the examples of good works, that the source of strength, of godly strength, of real strength, is self-control. And it's more than just controlling our thoughts and our emotions. It means governing ourselves. Men, if you have not set a pattern for your life, if you don't know who or what you're going to be from day to day, if you do not have a moral center, a compass that drives you, you need one because there can be no strength. There can be no self-control. There can be no courage. There can be no compassion. There can be no sacrificial love until we have a moral center that defines why we are those things. And that is what Satan is trying to erode, is the moral center. That being a man is not just about going to a nine-to-five and making sure that we have a paycheck. Being a man is not just about, uh, about making babies in a sexual way. Being a man is not just about driving kids to soccer practice. Being a man means that we have the courage to stand up and say what needs to be said, to do what needs to be done, and that I am willing to sacrifice myself for the good of those around me. Because that is the essence of self-control. But in that self-control, what we become is something that maybe you weren't thinking about until this moment, and that is peacemakers. Because you see, men know the difference between fighting a battle with an individual where we're called to make room for the wrath of God, not to exercise our own wrath or our own anger. That the peacemaker knows the difference between the battle that's between an individual and the battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The peacemaker knows the difference between just being angry with somebody because we don't agree or because they've done evil to us and being at war with a culture because we are going to be a shield and protector for our children that peacemakers understand that they are children of God. And that means we need to look like God. At times, God makes peace with the individual. At times, God goes to war with the culture. And we need to know the difference between those times. Romans 12 and 8 encourages us to live at peace with all men as much as it depends on us. But peacemaking means that we're actively working towards reconciliation. But it does not mean 
giving in to the whims of culture. And I am tired of hearing that from our culture. Being a peacemaker does not mean going along with every movement. And more and more often, what you see is that mainstream religion is going in that direction. Well, I want to be a peacemaker, so I better let people do what they want to do. The real peacemaker are those who, in sacrificial love, are calling people away from their sin, even though that may create division between people. Because ultimately, that's the call that makes peace between man and God. And if we're going to be men of God and you like this kind of message, there's going to be a whole lot more of it. And I realize that this may, in some ways, this may cancel this program. This may become very unpopular. But I am going to do everything in my power to help you be a man of God. And if you will share this message as wide as it can, you'll share it with the men of your life. You'll share it, sit down with your wife and listen to it again and say, I want to be this kind of man and help me be this kind of man. Then you will benefit from it, just like I benefit in sitting and meditating on these things. Until I talk to you again, have a good day, God bless, and man up. Dismissed!